Chapter Thirteen of the Boy Scouts on Lost Trail by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: An Unexpected Encounter. It was characteristic of Spud that he should have decided to brave the rain and further investigate the beaver colony. His interest was thoroughly aroused, and he simply had to see all that he could for himself. It was all very well to take the word of someone else for a thing when you couldn't investigate for yourself. But when you could, it was up to you to prove that the other fellow knew what he was talking about, according to Spud's reasoning, and the present instance was a case in point. He took one of the ponchos, slipping it over his head, and with his rifle, which he had brought along on the chance of getting a grouse or rabbit, he started to work his way around the southern side of the pond. In the first place it was the most practicable way of reaching the upper dams, and in the second place he felt sure that if there were any canals they would be on that side because of the steep banks on the northern side. Also, for the same reason, he felt sure that on that side he should find the scene of their lumbering operations. As he threaded his way along the shore following the line of least resistance, he became aware that there was a sort of trail, in places showing a faint semblance of a path, and then again indicated only by the bent or occasionally broken twigs which had been rudely brushed aside by heavy moving bodies. None but a trained eye would have noticed this. Under ordinary conditions, Spud might not have. But just now every sense was on the alert, and his eyes took in, and his mind registered, these little but significant details almost automatically. At first he was uncertain whether the trail had been made by man or beast, recalling what the sheriff had said about the trail to Big Bear Pond, he concluded that this was it. "'I don't wonder it's a little used,' he growled as he struggled through a thicket of young birch, pushing aside the wet branches that threatened his face. "'If I was going to be around these diggings long enough, I'd get busy with my hatchet and trim out a bit along here. I don't suppose it happens half a dozen times a year that anyone comes along here, unless it's a trapper in the winter.' Hmm, now that's funny. That little twig there was broken within less than three days. But those leaves are only wilted and not dried. Besides, that little strip of bark by which it hangs wouldn't stand much weather. The first good wind would break it. It's shoulder high, and that means it's too high for a deer to have broken it. A bear might have done it, only he would have had to be standing up, and no bear in his senses would stand up in this beastly thicket. Maybe a moose has been through here. I'll have a look on softer ground for tracks. If this were nearer civilization or a camp, I would say that a man had been along here. But that can't be, because nobody but the sheriff has been in the hollow since we hit it, and he came in by the same trail we did, and went out by the other way. Pat hasn't been up here, for I was with him the two days he was away from camp. This morning was the first time that either of the others had been to the beaver pond unless one of them was lying low and playing foxy. Come to think of it, Walt didn't seem a bit interested in visiting these other dams. Wonder if he was up here yesterday and kept quiet about it. Anyway, whoever or whatever broke that twig was going in the same direction that I am. I'll just keep my eyes open for more signs. When he reached the next dam, Spud forgot all about the trail and his interest in the beaver's work. It was apparent at a glance that this was a much more recent work than the big one. It afforded more of an opportunity to study the construction. 
some freshly peeled sticks in it caught his eyes. Been repairing this lately. Must be they're using it. And there's something doing up above, he muttered. Didn't find any recent cuttings on my way around here, so it must be that if they were doing any cutting, it was somewhere up above. Well, I might as well see the whole thing, so I'll push along to the next dam and see what there is there. It was but a short distance, perhaps three hundred yards, to the next dam. This proved to be the shortest and most recent of the three. In fact, there was evidence that it was not yet completed. It seemed more like a great windrow of sticks and brush than a cunningly planned and cleverly wrought work with a distinct purpose. The water was seeping through all along the face of it, and Spud was afforded an excellent chance to confirm what Walter had said about the method of construction and the way in which nature assists the furry workers to fill up and solidify the dam. The gentle current was bringing down considerable drift stuff, especially small twigs, many of them freshly cut and with the leaves still attached. Grass, dead leaves, etc., these were sucked into the mass of the dam, and sooner or later caught and held. The lower part of the dam below the waterline had been plastered by the beavers, not absolutely watertight, but sufficiently to be a decided check to the flow of water and cause it to back up rapidly. Spud examined several of the freshly cut twigs with interest. They were mostly poplar, though there were a few alder and birch, and evidently were trimmings from the recent logging operations. Must be that the harvest for winter has begun and that the cutting is going on somewhere above here, mused Spud. Wonder if it can be the same beavers that are down in the big pond. Doesn't seem possible, and yet I don't see any other houses. What's that? A low place in the dam, and at the foot of it, on the upper side, a short, heavy poplar log, evidently the bud of a newly cut tree, had caught his attention. He examined the place with new interest, and at once found evidence that other logs had been dragged over the dam at this point and rolled down into the lower pond. Apparently the log left there had been too heavy to get across. Guess that log must have been intended for the food pile down by the houses in the big pond, muttered Spud. Probably if I'd used my eyes better I'd have found a place where they had hauled across that second dam. I'll have a look on my way back. Now if I can find one of their canals and see the place where they were cutting, I'll be satisfied. Hello? What's that? A distant crash as of a falling tree had caught his attention. It appeared to come from a little ravine that made back to the right and above the pond. At once the thought that perhaps the beavers were at work there flashed into his mind, and with heart beating fast with excitement he at once began to work his way toward the point from whence had come the suspicious sound. Slowly, with infinite patience, Spud crept through the heavy undergrowth. The sodden condition of the ground was in his favor, but despite this and the care he took to avoid the snapping of a twig, he had not reached a vantage point for observation when a sharp report the slap of a broad tail on water told him that his approach had been discovered. He knew that further stalking would be wasted effort, and so he pushed rapidly ahead, and in a few minutes the scene of recent activity was before him. On the opposite slope of the ravine, and perhaps a hundred feet above the level of the bottom, was a small grove of poplars. From a point opposite this a newly dug ditch led out along the flat bottom and connected with the pond. The ditch, or canal, proved to be eighty-three feet long. 
It was about three feet wide and a foot and a half deep. The excavated soil piled on the side so neatly that it was hard to believe that the work had not been done by human labor. At the point where the canal entered the pond, the water on the ladder was but a few inches deep, and a ditch had been carried out along the bottom of the pond until the desired depth of water was reached. Crossing the canal, Spud found a runway cut through a thicket of young growth up to the edge of the poplar grove evidently for the purpose of getting the logs down to the water where they could be floated out to the pond and thence down to the food pile by the houses in the lower pond the work of harvesting had but recently been begun as less than a dozen trees had been cut the stumps of these were from three to five inches in diameter and scattered chips of the lumbermen littered the ground a newly cut tree six inches through lay on the ground undoubtedly the one that spud had heard fall several of the lower branches had already been cut off close to the trunk in a most workmanlike manner one big branch was half cut through and it was clear that the fur-coated lumberman had been at work on this when alarmed by spud's approach spud picked up the big chip which evidently was the last cut out and put in his pocket i'll keep that for a souvenir he muttered gee whiz but it is wonderful some folks say that animals have no intelligence but do everything by instinct Maybe so, but when instinct lays out and carries through an engineering job like this, all I can say is give me a little more instinct and less intelligence. He munched a bit of chocolate and some raisins and crackers which he had brought along, waiting in hope that the workers would return, but after an hour concluded that the beavers were too wary to come back during daylight. Feeling that he had seen all that he was likely to, and that was of interest, there he concluded to keep on and try to locate the trail to Big Bear Pond. It was only a little past noon, and there was ample time. The rain still fell, but it was hardly more than a drizzle now. Besides, he was wet through from his waist down from pushing through the wet undergrowth, and could hardly get any wetter. Following the upper shore of the beaver pond, he shortly came to the brook which fed it. This proved to be a small, sluggish stream, and a short distance up was lost in a swamp, in which it appeared to have its source. He was woodsman enough to know that the trail would not lie through that, if it could be avoided, and so swung around to the higher land on the south side. A thicket of young birches edged the swamp at this point, and here he saw rabbit signs so plentiful that in the hope of getting a rabbit or two to take back for supper he quite forgot about the trail for the time being. Following a well-defined run, he was abruptly halted by a bent birch. On each side of the run had been driven a stick, and caught in notches in these was a cross stick, from which hung a loop of fine copper wire in such a way that unsuspecting Bunny hopping along the path would thrust his head through it. The cross stick and noose were in turn fastened to the top of the bent birch, which, held in position by the ends of the cross stick catching the notches of the two side sticks, it was a snare. A long, low whistle escaped Spud. At once his mind leapt back to the broken twig he had noted shortly after leaving the lower dam. There has been somebody else in the hollow since we arrived, and this looks as if he were still here, he muttered with conviction, and hastily peered through the thicket as if he expected to find the object of his suspicions watching him. At once all thought of rabbit-hunting vanished. Here was something far more vital and thrilling. Man-hunting. Cautiously he explored the thicket, finding two more set snares, 
than one which had been sprung, the rigid form of a rabbit dangling pitifully in the air. Caught last night, muttered Spud as he examined the little victim. Suppose I may as well take him along. Whoever set that snare violated the law and deserves to lose his catch. On second thought, he decided to let it alone. He could make up his mind about it later and get the rabbit on his way back if he decided that he had a right to it. The matter of right entailed a fine point of ethics on which he was by no means clear. That the rabbit had been illegally killed there was no question, but there was a question as to whether he had a right to profit by the illegal act. It was analogous to the position of the fence who received stolen goods. On the other hand, was it right to allow the guilty one to profit by his act? Spud scratched his head in perplexity as he continued his search of the thicket. His first impulse, born of indignation on the discovery of the first snare, had been to destroy it, but a sense of caution had stayed him in time, and he had left all the snares as he found them. The thing to do, he reasoned, was first to find out, if possible, who had set them, or, in any event, to determine if the person or persons were still in the vicinity. If he should spring the snares and then fail to locate the camp of the one who set them, the latter would know on his first round of the snares that his presence was suspected and would decamp. And, Spud's heart leapt at the thought, it might be that this was the work of the outlaw for whom the sheriff was looking. He had worked to the outer edge of a thicket where it bordered a heavy stand of hemlock before he found another snare. This one had been sprung, and on the ground lay the torn remnants of the little victim. For some distance around, the ground appeared to have been recently disturbed as if by a struggle of some kind. Spud was puzzled. It looked as if a heavy body had been dragged over the ground. He examined a disturbed area with painstaking care and presently was rewarded by finding in a soft place where the carpet of leaf mold had been torn up, the clear imprint of a foot plainly showing the marks of big, incurving claws. "'Wildcat!' exclaimed Spud under his breath. "'Must have found Bunny hanging in the snare and pulled him down. But what in the dickens happened then?' "'Perhaps there were two, and they had a fight. Ha!' The last exclamation was caused by the discovery of a trail leading up into the hemlocks. Such a trail might have been made by dragging something fairly heavy over the ground. Cautiously, he started to follow it. "'Looks as if a log had been dragged along here,' he muttered. It required no great ability to follow the course of whatever had been along there, and Spud pushed ahead rapidly but cautiously. Had he been an experienced trapper, he would have read from the signs exactly what had occurred but as it was, he could only guess. The trail led up through a thicket of young hemlocks and plainly indicated a struggle of some kind all the way. Not only was the ground torn up, but in places some of the young trees were bruised and barked. Beyond the thicket the ground was comparatively open for a short distance, and here it was apparent that the going had been easier for whatever had been dragged there. In his eagerness Spud grew careless. The thought that there might be danger for him when he should reach the end of the broad trail did not once enter his head. His curiosity was thoroughly aroused, and he had but one thought, to find out what had happened back there among the birches. Glancing ahead, he saw the upturned roots of a great tree blown over in some storm which had swept through the hollow, and the trail led over to this. A trapper or trained woodsman of experience would have approached this with caution. Not so Spud. Increasing his stride, he hurried forward, intent on solving the mystery as soon as possible. 
as he turned the end of the fallen giant an indescribably savage splitting snarl greeted him from the tangle of a windfall of which the tree formed the outer edge it was followed instantly by a huge gray form springing straight at his face it was a canada lynx the lucivee of the north but at that moment spud was in no condition for the identification of species in natural history to him as he later confessed it was nothing short of an animal devil all teeth and claws and savage yellow eyes with a wild yell of mingled surprise and fright he leapt back tripped over a root and fell striking his head on a log then followed oblivion End of chapter 13